This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In many ways, people have become disconnected, dislocated, and dislodged from their place in the world as a result of trauma, and trauma due to physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, or just everyday unmanaged stress. And this is an important social determinant of health, and these traumas can actually change the chemical makeup of the brain and increase the risk of developing certain physical ailments, including digestive problems, diabetes, chronic pain, heart disease. Unfortunately, the American healthcare system is not effective in addressing the root causes of the chronic issues we face at a psycho-emotional level. Western culture is now looking for alternative ways to stem the epidemic of anxiety, depression, and stress we see in the modern world. Is there an opportunity in health transformation to seek alternative sources of healing and medicine that finds coherence between the mind and heart and the body and spirit. Listeners, this week we're offering a special bonus episode to discuss the healing potential of ayahuasca and energy. Our guest is Kevin Johnson. He's a shamanic healer who's become a popular public speaker, giving presentations on consciousness, shamanism, plant medicines, and psychedelics. He's been featured in several magazines and periodicals and has appeared on many popular podcasts, including Tangentially Speaking with Christopher Ryan, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, The Warrior Poet with Aubrey Marcus, Not Just Paleo with Evan Brand, Fat Burning Man with Abel James, and The Truth Junkie Podcast with Kevin Bates, just to name a few. Now, this will not be your typical Race to Value episode. Not only are we exploring the congruency between ayahuasca and healing and the parallels between shamanism and Western medicine, but we'll also be learning about the Kiro people of Peru who have a special relationship with the planet and an approach to energy balancing that maybe we could all learn from. If this isn't your cup of tea, no pun intended, no worries. Tune in next week for one of our more typical discussions on value-based care transformation. However, if you have an open mind and an open heart, you may find this conversation to be quite enlightening and informative as people around the world are retracing the ancient pathways of shamanism, the oldest spiritual practice of healing on the planet. So let's now hear from Kevin Johnson, otherwise known as Puma Blanco, who's joining us for this very special episode of The Race to Value. 
Hello, Kevin. Welcome to the Race to Value. It's so wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast to discuss your work with ayahuasca and your experience learning from the last of the great medicine men in the Quiro Nation in Peru. Yeah, thanks, Eric and Daniel. Really good to be here. Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, Kevin, I first met you a few years ago in Austin, Texas, as the founder and CEO of Zero Gravity Institute, a state-of-the-art flotation center and private research facility that you previously operated. You introduced me to the world of flotation, and other people may know it as sensory deprivation or isol isolation tank therapy. And adopting a float practice at your center really had a significant impact on my own mental health and overall well-being. And I just wanted to start off by saying thank you for bringing that gift in, into my life. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Eric. That uh, floating's ama an amazing thing. I wish more people knew about it and more people were doing it. Well, I agree, my friend. And uh, you've been on a journey since uh, uh, zero gravity. I, I know you've been uh, doing a lot of medicine work and um, you've been on several podcasts over the years. Um, and this podcast, Race to Value, it's focused on value-based care, which is a, a national movement to improve health outcomes while also reducing the egregious excesses and over, overutilization of our uniquely American health system that's overly focused on financial profit. And a major focus of this value movement is to incorporate lifestyle medicine and evidence-based treatments to promote better physical and mental health. And we just had on our show a few days ago, Dr. Charles Nimroff, who is the co-director for the Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapy. And he discussed uh, some of the innovative clinical research taking place with the advanced application of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health disorders. And as I learn about the potential for plant medicines and to heal others, I'm reminded of two quotes from Hippocrates, who is one of the most outstanding figures in the history of medicine. And he's noted as saying, the greatest medicine of all is teaching people how not to need it. And he also said, foolish the doctor who despises the knowledge acquired by the ancients. And the first quote is really the epitome of what value-based care is about. And that second quote reminds me of the ancient wisdom that can be imparted through an ayahuasca experience. And ayahuasca, is a, as I understand, it, it's a very ancient medicine. I mean, there's been archaeological evidence for the consumption of ayahuasca that goes back at least a thousand years with the discovery of a shamanic pouch that had traces of a psychoactive plant medicine in the Bolivian Andes. And as a traditional plant medicine has been used for centuries by indigenous cultures in the Amazon basin. I'm really fascinated by the potential health benefits of ayahuasca from psychological healing to spiritual growth. As we start our conversation today, can you provide our listeners with an overview of ayahuasca as a plant medicine and how it can alleviate the suffering that is inherent to the human condition? And, and how are the ceremonies structured and what role does a shaman like yourself play in the facilitation of healing? So ayahuasca you know, comes out of the Amazon. The shamanic brew that we drink as medicine is actually made up of two plants. So the first one is the, the vine, which is ayahuasca, and that's a Banisteriopsis capi. And then it's mixed with another plant that's like a green leafy plant called Chacruna, Psychotria veritas. And the, the leafy 
plant, the chacruna, is what contains the powerful psychedelic. It contains dimethyltryptamine. You, you may have encountered research here in the last few years um, around DMT, dimethyltryptamine. If you were to take the, the leaf by itself, the DMT would not be active in your system. The ayahuasca vine has um, an inhibitor, an MAOI inhibitor. So it, it inhibits the monoamine oxidase that's in your gut and allows the DMT to become orally active. So ayahuasca is unique in that way because it's the only um, plant medicine that we know of that actually is a combination of plants and not just one plant. So I find that interesting and unique about it. Ayahuasca can support us in many ways, um, not only in terms of like cleaning and healing aspects of the physical body, but this is also a hygienic process for the psychology and allows people to, I guess I would describe it as like turn down the filtering system momentarily so that they have a more subtle kind of perception. And this seems to help people heal spiritually as well. So this medicine can have profound effects on many different aspects of our persons. I also should probably mention just right off the top here, because uh, this is a topic that I've given a lot of thought to as more Westerners are trained to work with this medicine, there's a reasonable argument being put forward out there about cultural appropriation, about taking these traditions out of the jungle and um, out of that context. And I think it's important to understand that the way modern ayahuasqueros are working with medicine, it's adapted to be culturally appropriate to the cultures that we're serving medicine to. And this is something that about 25 years ago, this, this was something that indigenous healers in the Amazon decided to do. They, they looked around at the environment and they saw modernization coming in and destroying the rainforest in order to acquire more farmland and more uh, grazing land for cattle. And they realized that the world was very sick and the way to heal them was to share that medicine. And so they made a decision, a conscious decision to start teaching Westerners how to work with this medicine and how to serve it and how to take care of people. So I just kind of want to get that I want to dispel that idea a little bit that there's some kind of cultural appropriation going on. Well, Kevin, as someone who's never had an experience with plant medicines, including ayahuasca, I'm fascinated by the psychedelic renaissance that's taking place and how there, there are major celebrities like Prince Harry and Aaron Rodgers. They're touting the benefits of ayahuasca. And it's interesting to learn how psychedelics could potentially intersect with healthcare or our allopathic healthcare system. You know, when you think of personal wellness and spiritual development and the overall elevation of human consciousness. And I've always thought of psychedelic psychedelics as drugs that get people high, like an illicit drug or something that a person could abuse, or they're just substances that make people hallucinate. But I'm in, in learning about this emerging body of evidence that, you know, there's, there's evidence that shows immense potential for healing in certain mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, addiction, and PTSD. 
And Dr. Rick Strassman was the first person in the U.S. to undertake human research with DMT, the psychoactive component of ayahuasca. And he, and he called it the spirit molecule. And those who've experienced ayahuasca seem to have a very personal relationship with it, referring to it as feminine spiritual energy. And this supposed spirit, what ayahuasca users call the mother, you know, it, it said that it helps it said that it helps people purge the physical, energetic, psychological, and emotional impurities that inhibit growth and progress, kind of what you were speaking to with removing that filter. And as I understand, there's teaching, cleaning, and healing that she provides. And this is something that it's very difficult for me to comprehend as a kind of looking in. But uh, research studies confirm that most ritualistic ayahuasca users have a shared experience with something that's deeply spiritual and mystical in nature. And I'm hoping you can elaborate on this personal relationship that ayahuasca users have with the medicine or the mother. And as a facilitator of ayahuasca, I'd love to learn more about how this medicine can heal uh, psychological trauma and even physical ailments and chronic disease. What exactly is the connection to the spiritual and energetic components of the mind that are unlocked by this spirit molecule that could could be so profoundly beneficial to a person's healing. Yeah, the the experience with ayahuasca for many many people, you sense that there is an intelligence behind the medicine and an intelligence that's directing the experience, and um, that is very novel for most people. Um, unless you've done a lot of work with other plant medicine, the idea of an intelligence behind the medicine is, is unique. When we talk about this as a hygienic process for the psychology, we have to understand that, and I, I think we're going to get into this a little bit later in, uh, as we talk more about energy, but uh, there is uh, reason to talk about this now. We have to understand that living in this universe of energy where literally everything is, a, is energy in some form, we recognize that the experiences in our lives, the traumas, the defeats, the victories, everything, all, all of the events that happen to us along our timeline are having an energetic impact on us. The memories and the energy behind these experiences stay in our energy bodies they also stay in our physical bodies. We, we, you know, we hear a lot of talk about this where people are saying, oh, you're, you're holding this event in your body. You're experiencing this pain. It's not a physical thing. It's an energetic thing or a psychological thing, right? Something about the medicine, the reason we say teach, heal, and clean is because if the medicine allows you to see the truth of these things, to recognize that within yourself, oh, I'm still holding the energy of this thing that happened to me, you know, two decades ago, maybe, right? And it's showing it to you and it's giving you a way to purge that energy, whether it's in the form of, you know, vomiting or um, crying or laughing or shaking or sighing. And the I mean, there's many, many ways that we can purge in these ceremonies. It's, it's affording us an energetic release so that we're not storing the energy of these events that happen in our life. Yeah, the physical healing part of it, I mean, we've heard some miraculous and sensational stories over the years about, you know, people that have run out of options in the um, Western health system, you know, they're diagnosed with terminal diseases, cancers and stuff. 
And, you know, just kind of out of a last ditch effort, they, they head to South America to drink ayahuasca and they suddenly have, you know, miraculous cure, their cancer goes into remission, uh, some system in the body that was failing suddenly is working. I mean, there's a reason why it's referred to as medicine. Like it, it, it can heal things in the physical body, gut issues, digestive issues, all kinds of, I've heard stories of all kinds of uh, physical healing and I've witnessed a lot of the physical healing. So, you know, the mechanism behind that, like what's going on there, I think is still a question that has to be fully explored to be answered. But I mean, we are seeing, uh, you know, we are seeing these things happen and we hear a lot of anecdotes about these things happening. The psychological healing component of it is much more evident and, you know, very, very common. I would say that, you know, for the most part, if not every single person at a retreat, but most people at a retreat are definitely getting some kind of psychological healing, whether it comes in just clarity about your life, seeing the truth of situations, seeing the truth of you know, what role am I playing in this situation? What role is this other person playing in this, in this situation? Seeing, seeing those things clearly and, and truthfully without our biases coming into play is one thing that we see a lot. Also just seeing in, 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 in the form of visions or maybe it's just an understanding that you come to that maybe some event in your life that's been harboring your, you know, or has been inhibiting your growth stopping you from progressing and, and, and meeting your full potential. And you suddenly become aware of the fact that like, oh, that's what's holding me up. It's that thing right there. And how, how important is it really that I hold on to this thing? Clarity and insight and discernment and wisdom are also being given to us from the mother when we're in these ceremonies. Well, Kevin, what you're talking about requires a fundamental paradigm shift. I mean, many of our listeners right now are being challenged to think differently and they're trying to understand something that's entirely foreign to them. And in this Western culture, it's especially difficult for people to overcome the domestication and conditioning that takes place, which is so often countervailing to the ancient wisdom that's held by indigenous cultures. And as you've deepened your shamanic practice and your work with ayahuasca, as I understand, you've spent a lot of time learning from the Kiero, which are a, a Quechua-speaking community that lives in one of the most remote places in the, in the Peruvian Andes. And their culture is based on living in close connection with the earth, and their healing experience and wisdom is handed down through the generations. And they're a very spiritual culture, as I understand. It's, it's based on a very simple yet fundamentally beautiful uh, concept of reciprocity, love, and balance, and the community of indigenous Pacos, and that's a word for uh, like they use for shamans or mystics. They're the last descendants of the Inca high priest lineage, and they're one of the few civilizations on earth that have kept their ancient uh, teachings, secret codes, and Inca spiritual cosmovision intact and alive for centuries. And you have a Peruvian teacher. As I've learned, uh, his name's Don Gino Chakaruna, and he's taught you ancient techniques and rituals associated with ayahuasca healing. And I'd love to learn more about this community and their mythology. And can you share 
your experiences with the Kiro people? I mean, what are they like? How do they live? And how does their culture compare to what we know in the West? And how has your experience also with the Kiro uh, strengthened your connection to Pachamama uh, or, you know, Mother Earth and made you a better shamanic healer? Yeah. So you started the question talking about domestication and the influence that the culture has over us. And this is generally why the idea of healing with plant medicines and the kind of spirituality that comes from that is so foreign to most Westerners. The, the, the culture that we live in is exquisitely detailed and therefore very, very distracting. So we tend to lose touch with ourselves as spiritual beings. Also, as beings that are part of a natural system, the, the, the natural world, nature, we're part of that system and our, our culture separates us from that system. And this is the reason that a couple of years ago, Don Gino invited me to go with him to a very remote Caro village. Now, the Caro people are scattered all through the Andes. And, you know, some of them live in more modern towns. I mean, they're still remote for the most part and not necessarily what we think of as modern, but, you know, they have electricity and running water and things like that. But there are pockets of the Caro people that have remained very, very isolated. And Don Gino asked me back in 2021 to go with him and a small group of people to a village. It's, uh, I guess it's south of the city of Cusco, as like you're heading toward the mountain um, Asangate. And he took us to this village called Hapu, which is way up there. It's like it's 16,600 feet above sea level. And there's no similarity between our life and their life. They they have no electricity, no plumbing. They they live in stone, little stone houses with thatch roofs on them. The day-to-day -day life centers around their llamas and alpacas and their families and their community. Gino wanted to take some of his apprentices and students and go visit these people because you really needed to immerse yourself into their culture. You needed to see how they live and how functional and happy the people are, even without the things that we as Westerners think we need to have a comfortable life. And what we learned from the Caro people is this energy system that I talked about, they, they recognize that we live in a universe of energy and therefore quite simply energy is the game we're playing. And I see that's, that's information that most people don't have. Most people don't even understand what game they're involved in. So the game is energy and how we play the game is through acquisition, how and where do we get this energy maintenance what do we do with this energy once we have it how do we clean this energy and make it useful for us so that when we invest energy we are investing only the energy we need to invest in order to attain the outcome that we would like so the game is energy and you play it through acquisition maintenance and investment this is how pragmatic the caro people are this the, the more simply they can describe something, 
the more impact the teaching has. The Kero people teach us to live in reverence for the natural world. The Kero people view the mountains as deities, what they call um, Apu, and where we would say, you know, that mountain is called Asangati, they would say that is Apu Asangati. They recognize it as an entity, like a deity, right? They make offerings to it. They recognize the earth that sustains and supports us and provides us with abundance and the beautiful ease of life that we have. This is because of a spirit of nature called Pachamama. The water is to be reverenced and made offers to and plants are are revered and you know you, the idea for them is to work in harmony with the natural system around them because they recognize they're part of that system in our culture we spend a lot of our time going against that system and going against that system is making us sick it's making us physically sick psychologically emotionally and spiritually we are not well because we are out of right relation to the system that we actually belong to kevin as as i understand you know you've you've brought up the andean people and i want to dive a little deeper into that and the and their way is all about cultivating this consciousness and to be aware of your every action or thought emotion intention intuition, dreams, and vision. It's holding the state of your being by managing your energy and always maintaining your connection to Mother Earth. And the Carol, the Carol people believe that we are governed by two kinds of energy. There's the Hucha and the Sami. And Hucha is created by humans and, and is prolific in the physical world. And it's the dense, disorganized energy of the subconscious. The Sami, though, is refined and organized, light energy harmonized with the perfection of nature. And the Carol live in balance within their energetic environment. And this is a concept that they know as, or a concept known as Aini. And the power of healing is generated by energy balance and one's connection with reciprocity and gratitude. And they believe Mother Earth takes the dense energy as a food source through this gift of Aini or energetic reciprocity. And basically, Mother Earth turns this hucha into nutrients for restoration and renewal of the planet. And the healing construct is really, it may seem out there and a little bit hippy-dippy to some, but the Carol history and cosmology is deeply rooted in the ancient principles of these energies. And can you further explain the energy relationship and how it relates to the ancient plant medicine of ayahuasca that's used by the Carol for healing? Yeah, so really, okay, Ayahuasca is not really a part of the Kero's tradition. They will drink ayahuasca, and they have forever, but the Kero people don't specifically work with plant medicine. Their concepts of healing are, are more energetic. So I talked about how we live in a universe of energy. Everything can be reduced to energy. You look at a tree, it's the energy of sunlight, it's the energy of nutrients from the soil, right? It's just manifesting in, in the way that a tree does. In this universe of energy and the energy game that we're playing, we recognize that there is a fundamental source of energy that is universal and limitless. 
there is a limitless supply of Sami. And Sami is very high vibrational energy. It's effervescent, it rises. Um, it's in abundant supply. When we talk about Sami, it's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like if I have some Sami, then you, Daniel, or you, Eric, don't have that Sami. It's, we, we don't look at it that way. It's, it's in infinite supply, okay? Hucha, as you mentioned, only created between people. So this is the energy of our, you know, um, misunderstandings, miscommunications, violence, war, right? It's, it's only produced between humans. So in this whole universe, only these two flavors of energy available to us. When you're born, you have an energetic system that's highly functional, and it's taking in energy of both forms. This is where the acquisition part of how to play the game, that's how we talk about this. You're acquiring energy all the time through the mechanism of this energy system that you're born with you're going to be taking in at any given time, both Sami and Hucha. When we're young and this energy system is functioning properly, we have intuitive ways of doing the maintenance part and releasing the Hucha. We see little children do this, right? So some sensation is coming into their body and into their mind and they have a temper tantrum and they throw themselves on the ground and they are doing it. They're, re it, they're releasing hucha and giving it to the earth, giving it to the Pachamama. And then they stand up and they go back to playing and it's like, it never happened. Everything is fine. Now, the problem with that is that well-meaning parents, well-meaning adults and teachers and family members will tell that kid, hey, don't do that. That's unacceptable right? And so we learn at a very young age that for some reason, releasing our hucha is a bad thing. And so we stop doing it. And the whole energy system starts to atrophy because we're not using it. And then what happens is we're taking in energy and some of that energy is hucha and we just keep stuffing it in the suitcase and holding on to it and holding on to it and holding on to it. The energy of our experiences in our life, in our story, along our timeline, we're holding the trauma of some things, holding the energy of trauma, the energy of disappointment, the energy of defeat, the energy of regret, all of these things. And we're holding them because the system doesn't know how to automatically release that heavy dense energy this is what's making us sick how many how many stories do we know of somebody that goes to the doctor and they see all these specialists clearly there's something wrong but the specialist can't tell you what it is because they can't quantify the effects of this energy that you're storing in your in your energy body what we call the poke po it's the uh, luminous egg, the light body, the auric field. You know, people call it all different things. But we're all talking about the same thing. We're storing that energy. And we just keep adding 10-pound blocks to the suitcase because we don't know how to release it. And so we get sick. 
And what we should be telling children in those moments is, yeah, what you're doing, that was great. That's releasing negative energy and you have to do that and that's healthy. And I'm gonna sit here with you while you do it. We're gonna learn other ways that are more socially acceptable to do that, but for right now, that's fine. And that way we don't domesticate the energy system out of function for people. We need to always be in Aini, sacred reciprocity, Aini, A-Y-N-I, means sacred reciprocity, always giving, always receiving. A functional energy system is always maintenancing, always releasing hucha into the earth, always allowing that space, the vacuum that's created inside the energy body as we release hucha, sami energy is naturally pulled into the energy body, into the pokpo. That process needs to be happening automatically, and it's not. The Kero people are teaching us about that system and how that system works. And this is part of a prophecy. The Kero people are wisdom keepers, and they have been tasked with holding this wisdom for, you know, we don't know how long, thousands of years, in order to someday be able to restore that wisdom. And that's kind of the process that they're in now. That's why they're they're teaching people like me and many other people who visit them and learn their ways and, and learn about their processes and their healings. They're doing that for a reason. There's a prophecy called the eagle and the condor. And I imagine we'll, we'll talk about this in the future, but that's, how, that's where the information has been kept. And that's where the information is coming from now as the Caro make their effort to fulfill this prophecy and aid in the healing of the world. Well, Kevin, let's let's talk more about the this prophecy of the eagle and condor. I mean, the Kiro Nation believe in this pro in this prophecy, and it's been foretold to them how we can all come together as one. And they say it's written in the stars that we fulfill this prophecy where spiritual energy can be moved to heal the planet. And this will begin a new time where they, they believe the eagle and the condor reunite, and this prophecy of the eagle and the condor, it's an ancient prophecy of the Amazon, and it speaks of human societies splitting into two paths where we become two different people. I mean, the eagle people and the condor people, and the eagle people, as, as I've read, are like typically mind-oriented, industrial, they're related to masculine energy. They're often identified with science, technology. They've been explorers, colonists, aggressors, and the records of history. I mean, these are you know typically the people of the West, and the Condor people are are known to be intuitive, creative, feeling related to more of that feminine energy. And indigenous people have usually identified with this path as they prioritize the heart above the brain and mysticism over rationalism in their cultures. And I wanted to ask you if you could discuss more about this ancient prophecy and what the Kiero have taught you about it. I mean, how does your work, for example, also with ayahuasca help to fulfill such a prophecy? We now know through genetic research that the Kiero people are the genetic descendants of the ancient Puebloans of North America. So what we now know as the Hopi, the Zuni, the Navajo, the Ute, like the people of the desert Southwest, the Four Corners region, Okay. At some point in history, we don't know exactly when this happened, there was a sense that the wisdom that they held was being diluted, whether that was from 
belief systems from other people filtering in as you know uh, travelers and, and people trading and things like that began to expose each other to different ideas and philosophies and belief systems they came to the determination that the the purity of these ideas and this wisdom was being adulterated and so a group of them took off and went all the way to south america in order to preserve it that's why we call them the wisdom keepers they isolated themselves in a place where they could keep this wisdom pure so the prophecy says that there will be a planetary alignment that will indicate the end of one epoch and the beginning of another one an end of the time when the Kero people were were solely responsible for for preserving the wisdom it was going to shift over and their new responsibility would be to restore the wisdom back to the people where it came from the people of the eagle and this planetary alignment happened quietly and without a lot of pomp and pageantry back in 1994. Uh, in 1994, a group of Kero elders, Pacos, the shamans, they came to New Mexico. They went into the San Francisco mountains up on top of a peak there with some, uh, some of the local uh, medicine people and healers from these North American indigenous groups. And they did several days of ritual on top of the mountain to officially reorient everyone and welcome in this, this new era, this new epoch. There's kind of an interesting little tangent about this too. About four days after they did that ceremony uh, in the San Francisco mountains, the state of California, not to be confused, the San Francisco mountains are in New Mexico. But four days after they did that, the state of California released the first condors back into the wild. First California condors, they were, had all been in captivity as part of a repopulation program. <laughs> and when they told the Caro shamans about this, they, they were like, yeah, so of course that would happen. <laughs> so I just think that's kind of an interesting little side detail to that story. But uh, so yeah, now they're, now they're, primary mission is to teach this wisdom the how to interact with the natural world how to play the energy game how to be efficient and wise and discerning with how you invest your energy in an effort to heal the world we we forget that our thoughts are energy our words are energy our actions are energy and we need to get in control of the way we're using that energy so that it benefits us and the people around us and the larger world as a whole, instead of depreciating it all the time. Like so much of what we do is energetically harmful to other people. And the Caro people are saying, no, enough of that. We've preserved this wisdom since ancient times. We need to, we're going to teach this now to people and send them out into the world so they can teach other people about it and, you know, adapt it for modern culture, put it into language and a way of that, that modern people can understand the principles and give people ways to, to start using those principles actively in their life to really create their own reality. I mean, this, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about becoming a master of living energy where I'm only investing the exact right kind of energy in the exact right way to ensure the outcome that I want. And that, after all, is 
what creates the reality around us. Essentially, what they're teaching us in terms of using our energy, it comes down to something we call sympathetic resonance. It's, it's like the law of attraction. Like energy attracts like energy. So the analogy that I like to use here is if you put two guitars face to face and you pluck one string on one guitar, the energy of that sound wave striking the other guitar will activate the same string on the second guitar. And that string will start making sound even though I haven't touched it. And this is a good way to look at energy investment. If I'm carrying in my energy body, in my poke po, if I'm carrying a lot of Sami, this high, high vibration, workable, useful energy, that's what I'm investing out into the world. And it's going to activate like energy. If I'm putting out good, positive, high vibrational energy, it's going to activate good, positive, high vibration things in my life. If I'm carrying around a lot of hucha, and I'm investing a lot of hucha, well, same thing's going to happen. It's just my reality is going to look like I'm bad luck Joe. We, we know this guy. We know the guy whose car is always getting broken into at the parking lot. He's got terrible relationships with people. He, people steal from him. Just you know, bad luck seems to follow him around. And the hard truth of this is that he's personally responsible for that. Like that's what he's investing in the world. And so he's getting more of it back. And then we know this other person who's like, she's got this Midas touch. Everything she tries to do just works out. People trust her. They like her. They want to work with her. It seems so easy for her. Well, she's also responsible for that because she's investing that kind of energy. She's creating that reality around her. That's why this is important. If you, if you want your life to be different than it is now, you have to change something. And through this approach, we change the energy that we address the world with to determine the outcome of the situations in our lives. It's very, very useful information and very useful skill to uh, cultivate. So the way this all affects our work with ayahuasca or you know, other plant medicines, like we, we also work with a Andean medicine called Wachuma. It's made from the San Pedro cactus. It's uh, a close cousin to peyote. So uh, mescaline is the active ingredient there. But with, with all of these plant medicines, like we engage with it on an energetic level. So we, as, as facilitators, as shamans who are, are conducting the ceremony, we're curating the energy in the space for the benefit of all the participants. And we may come and work on you individually and create energy with you and around you that will help move you through a, a, a problematic moment. Maybe you're stuck in a thought loop or you're suffering through something you're having a hard time breaking through. Like we come to you and we're shamans are using energy. We're using vibration in order to facilitate healing. We, rec we recognize it as energy. I'm going to give you a certain frequency of energy in my song, my, my, what they call ikaros, or the sounds that I'm making with a drum or a rattle or a shakapa, which is like a bundle of dried leaves that we shake. Um, we're using vibration and the energy of that vibration to cause things to happen in 
the energy field that's in our ceremony or in the personal energy field of the person that we're working on. This is also what I do in my private practice when I see uh, private clients. We don't, we're not using plant medicine to facilitate the healing. Now we're just working strictly in the realm of energy. And how do we shift energy inside the pokepo to facilitate in the healing, whether the healing is physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, it's all part of the same system. We're using energy as a form of medicine to heal people. Kevin, yeah, I'm really intrigued by the energy conversation. And, you know, I can't help but think of similarities between the energy management and utilization that you describe and and similar beliefs in other cultures, you know, Eastern cultures and and uh and many throughout the world. And that is so obviously lacking in Western culture. I'm just curious if I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but I'm curious as to any connections you've seen and um, similarities or differences or lessons that you've learned from uh, maybe comparing other cultures and their approach to energy. Yeah, this is one of the things that really piqued my interest in what the Kero people were teaching, because I see similarities in the East, where, where the focus is on mindfulness practices and uh, yogic traditions where they're taking care of the mind and the body and the spirit in order to look at the a human being holistically, right? I see parallels in uh, North American shamanism. I've had a lot of exposure to medicine people in the North, and um, we're all talking about the exact same thing. We're, we're, we're sometimes getting in conflict over language, which human beings tend to do a lot. That's one of the ways that we produce hucha. Right? We're arguing over language, but if you take a step back, you see it that like, oh, well, you know, the, the monks in Nepal and the, the Hindu practitioners in India and the Kero people in South America and the, the Pueblo people of the desert southwest of America, we're all talking about the same thing. This is how we know that something is more universally true. Like if there, there, if there is a, if there is a truth out there, like here's an example where a lot of people are referencing the same kind of idea. You know, they may build different systems around how to do it, but the idea is, you know, there in in many cultures. And I'm I'm sure if we look at shamanic cultures and people who are living with more ancient wisdom, we would probably find examples of it all over the globe. The ancient people knew this. The ancient people knew this stuff. And that's, that's why they, they emphasized it and why they created practices and um, systems to function in. It's just that in the West, our culture is so distracting. Like we don't, we don't talk in our culture about taking care of ourselves holistically. I mean, we're starting to now and that's beautiful, but you know, traditionally this wasn't a topic of conversation for us. And I, I'm optimistic now because I see this kind of wisdom being spread and I see this kind of wisdom being embraced. And I think it's going to make a difference. Well, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. And I, I definitely see that being an important thing for for us in Western society and Western medicine to appreciate and understand the connection to energy that we have and the potential for healing that it can, can bring to us. And 
you know, while we've been talking about some pretty amazing and maybe magical and, and potentially difficult things to understand for many, I want to make sure that we don't just glamorize or overstate the benefits of the ayahuasca experience. You know, it seems like it's a potentially powerful medicine to heal people in a number of ways, but, you know, even the experiences themselves can be intense and, and, and sometimes horrific. And there are also many contraindications and warnings that people should be aware of. And so there's, there's even shamans out there that are dangerous and, and these bad actors could try to exert control of people and even weaponize the medicine. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners specific warnings and things they should consider with ayahuasca and, and what could be done to ensure that those who do seek healing from a plant medicine like this receive the most valuable and efficacious experience possible. Sure. Okay. So I'm super glad that we're talking about this right now because this is important to me. I don't want to ever give the impression that plant medicines are some kind of panacea that everyone should be doing plant medicine in order to heal. I, I, that's not the message that I want to put out there. I often tell people, you know, ayahuasca is for everyone, but not everyone should drink ayahuasca. There are other ways to come to an understanding and fundamentally change our lives and transform ourselves as people without taking psychedelics, without doing plant medicine. We, we talked about flotation tanks earlier in the conversation, you know, right there is a great example of something. If you're a person who, for whatever reason, can't or you don't want to take psychedelics or take plant medicines, like you can go get in a flotation tank and alter your consciousness. You can sit in meditation and alter your consciousness, do yoga and alter your consciousness. What we're talking about here is claiming the edges of ordinary reality, claiming the edges of this consciousness as a place where profound personal transformation can happen. But I don't want to give the impression that everybody needs to go drink ayahuasca. As with anything, these we can experience problems with this. As you mentioned, like there are some ayahuasqueros, some plant medicine shamans who will use that medicine to gain control over people, to manipulate people. I've encountered many situations where the shaman has put, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, like an energetic feeding tube. You may go to the jungle or the mountains and drink medicine with this shaman and he tethers himself to you and he's drawing energy from you even after you've got on the airplane and gone home. He's still drawing energy from you. This, this is black magic. These people need to be stopped. Part of my personal practice is dealing with those kinds of situations where people have come back from a trip to South America and they are not feeling good. They, they, they feel like there's something wrong. They're tired. They're sick. They just can't seem to get back in the game. And I start working on them and I find these energetic tethers and I, I have a way of releasing them from that and sending that back to the shaman who attached it and letting that shaman know that he no longer has access to this person. So we, we do have to be careful about these things. Ayahuasca tourism has caused a lot of problems in South America. 
a lot of people go down there and they haven't done research and they just end up with any any person who looks indigenous and says they've got ayahuasca or wachuma or you know whatever and they just trust that they're in good hands and a lot of times they're just not we we hear a lot of terrible stories coming out of these retreat centers in south america where you know people are being abused women are being molested people are worse off than they were before they went and that that's not ayahuasca that's not what ayahuasca is about that's that's a that's the fault of the human being and it's something we do have to be very aware of well kevin in learning about this ayahuasca medicine i've heard that music plays a big part in the ceremonies and you as a shaman are able to move and change energy through the frequency and vibration of the music i mean and there's a various ceremonial instruments that are used. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, chacapa, I think it was, which is like a rattle of bundled leaves. I mean, and then there's traditional rattles, drums, there's singing bowls, other things like that. And then these medicine songs you mentioned earlier, they're called uh, Icaros, and they're sung in a way that creates waves of frequency to curate the space, to block, to move blocked energies and even force negative energies away from people. And I was thinking as we wrap up our conversation today, it would be wonderful if you're uh, able to maybe to sing an Icaro to end the podcast. And also before doing so, I mean, uh, feel free to provide any additional parting thoughts and in contact information if you're so inclined, but uh, just wanted to kind of offer that opportunity, um, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today. Yes, thank you for that opportunity. I, I would love to do that. Um, I guess just in, to wrap this up, uh, a lot of potential in these plant medicines, in these psychedelics, but we must approach the entire thing with wisdom and discernment, always keeping our safety and the safety of others in mind, because the Renaissance has begun to cause as many problems as it's solving. And I think we should all just, you know, kind of be aware of that. Uh, if you want to be in touch with um, our organization, our organization is called Vida Brigante. It means bright life. You can email us at shine at vidabrigante.org. You can also go to our website, vidabrigante.org, learn more about what we do. And there's a sign up form in there that you can get on our mailing list and we can let you know about retreats that we're holding excursions that we're taking different offerings that we have whether it's you know we work with combo we work with wachuma we work with ayahuasca we uh, do personal work uh, man, many different offerings from vita brigante so that's a good place to start to close this out i'm going to do um what's called a tree ikoro uh, around ayahuasca work uh, and ayahuasca healing we also rely very heavily on other plants and specifically trees. One of the ways that we can heal people is by calling in the medicine of a certain tree to aid us in our healing, to sort of augment the medicine of ayahuasca to achieve a more specific effect. Um, the tree ikaro is kind of a negotiation. We call the tree, we sweet talk it a little bit, we tell it what we want. If we have an agreement, we tell it what we're going to trade for its medicine and for its assistance. And uh, the tree guru sounds like this. Uh, the one I'm going to do right now is for a, a, a jungle plant called Bobinsana, and it is um, a heart-opening medicine. So we will call now for assistance from the spirit of Bobinsana. 
Kevin Johnson, thank you so much, my friend. Uh, this has been an incredible uh, discussion. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us and our audience. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. It's really cool to be here with you today, and I hope everybody gets a lot out of this. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias, Madre Ayahuasca. Muchas gracias. Paki, Paki, mama. 